The Grazadio School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. And I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who is the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Rick. It's great to be here today. Well, it is hard for me to believe that we're looking at another season of the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Tell us a little bit about the series for our first-time listeners. Tell us why, uh, how this program has developed and how it has grown over the years. We've been doing this program for probably four or five years now. And it was designed to bring in really high-level business executives and thought leaders to really expose our students, alumni, and the the community in this region to what's going on in business in a cutting-edge kind of way. And it's been extremely successful. We've had some amazing speakers through the years, so we're excited to kick this year off. Yeah, give us a sense of of some of the kinds of of people you've brought to this series. Well, last year we were really fortunate to have Brian Moynihan about three weeks before he was named CEO of Bank of America. Uh, So that was quite a coup and very interesting given what's going on in the financial industry to hear from him. Uh, Several years ago, we had Ann Sweeney, who's the president of Disney ABC Television Speak, uh, happened to be on the day that Disney purchased Pixar. So that happened in the morning. She spoke in the afternoon. So not only have we had really amazing people, our timing's been very good as well. That's perfect. (laughs) And, And I see it's really just across many industries. So you have all kinds of people in different kinds of positions. So it probably really does appear to your students who are from different sectors as well. Exactly. We really work hard to uh, be representative of the industries that our alumni are from and that are represented in uh, really Southern California, but even the broader business community, uh, so that there's a lot of diversity and people with all different kinds of interests will have something that they can look for in the series. Very good. Well, Linda, your first guest is Randy Pond. He's the Executive Vice President for Operations and Processes and Systems at Cisco. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Randy. Well, really excited about having Randy. He actually came to us through one of our Board of Visitors members, uh, Ron Berryman, so we appreciate Ron for that. Uh, But Randy uh, is really... In, in many ways, kind of the second in command at Cisco, and he oversees the functions of corporate affairs, customer value chain management, customer operations, human resources, so really the operational side of the organization. So he'll give us a really interesting, in-depth look at what they're doing at Cisco. Well, I look forward to this conversation. Well, let me uh, invite our listeners to just sit back and relax and enjoy this uh, interview with Randy Pond. Well, we're kicking off this year's Dean's Executive Leadership Series with Randy Pond, who is the Executive Vice President of Operations, Processes, and Systems for Cisco, which is uh, one of the world's largest data networking companies based in San Jose, and they employ over 70,000 people around the world. So, Randy, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, this is a leadership series, so one of the things I always like to hear from our uh, guests that are with us is sort of how they got to where they are from a leadership perspective. So what was the journey you took to be where you are now at uh, Cisco? So I um, I grew up in the Midwest in Indiana. I went to school in Indiana. Um, I started out in public accounting. Um, I was there about three or four years and then decided that I wanted to change and I moved to California in 1980 and I worked for Xerox and Schlumberger and several other companies in the area. But I did a startup in from 1983 to 87 or 88 
and it didn't it didn't make it. We had to sell it, but it was a great learning experience. I discovered that I actually liked the startup environment, um, and then I would I left that startup and went back to Xerox um, as a controller, and then I became the VP of finance at one of their divisions, and I became the VP of operations at the same division. Um, and then the guys that I did the first startup with called me and said we're doing another one, and. I tried to find people for them and stuff, and finally they recruited me, and I went in as the CFO and the VP of Ops. Because um, by then, I'd gone into operations at, at Xerox, and I liked the operations side of the house. Um, but I was willing to do the CFO job because they knew me in the CFO role. Um, and then we were in the high-speed data networking business, and we were in the switching business. We started up with... Um, in the optical business and then went to Ethernet um, later. And we were doing an OEM, trying to do an OEM deal with Cisco. And John Chambers came to me in the middle of the negotiations and said, you know, we're going to have to buy you. And I'm like, uh, this is going to be a problem because I know John Mortgage well and he's going to want to pay you nothing. And my board's <laughs> going to have very high expectations. We ended up negotiating and we sold the business for about $100 million. We're, by the time we were about $18 million a uh-huh. year in revenue. Not yet profitable, I think, but 80 employees. Okay. Um, when we was, and that was their first acquisition. It was in September of 93 um, when we closed, December, uh, September 23rd. Then when we came into the business, we all thought we would come in and just stay for a few years and leave. And when I came in, John said, well, where do you want to go? I've got controller jobs available in finance. Would you be willing to do that? I said, you know, I'd rather go into operations. So and they had just gotten a brand new um, senior vice president of operations, a guy out of Deckman, Carl Redfield. Carl brought me in as um, a director in the organization. Mm-hmm. I ran planning and logistics and other things. And I moved through the organization over the next three or four years, and I got promoted to VP, then to SVP, then... I was going to leave in like 1995 or 90, no, I'm sorry, 98 or 99. Carl decided that maybe we should look at a reorganization. And I ended up fundamentally his only direct report for a period of time. And then in the early 2000s, maybe 2001, Carl decided he wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. And I got the, I ran all of operations for Cisco for just a couple of years. And then John decided that I had done a lot of transformation work in manufacturing. We, we led outsourcing at the time. Um, we had done a lot of with some creative things around supply chain management. And he decided he wanted to take my transformation skills and give me a bigger platform. So he moved me to, to a bigger job. I kept operations, but I picked up IT, mm-hmm. and I think I picked up customer service. So I had sort of a platform to work from. And then I started driving the process reengineering work inside of the business mm-hmm. and the business transformation work. Um, which included setting up a matrix manager organization for John. And then I picked up more things. I picked up, oh my God, I have, um, so today I have supply chain, IT, HR, legal affairs, corporate affairs, corporate quality, customer service. I own the transformation platform, um, and I run the connected business operations council for John, and I clearly sit on the executive staff. A big growth in responsibilities over it has the last been, 10 yeah. years. That's dramatic. Yeah. Well, so you started, I mean, you're, you're, Transition into Cisco was from a small entrepreneurial company. It was. Of course, Cisco is a huge worldwide company. So, what did you learn? I guess two aspects yeah. of this question. What did you learn in that entrepreneurial environment that has helped you at Cisco? And then, what have been the biggest challenges over the last 10 years of making that transition? Well, so you have to divide them. There's, a, there's two Cisco's here. So, there's the, there's the Cisco from 1984 when it was founded to 2000. Mm-hmm. And we had a compounding growth rate of greater than 55% for those years. This place was wild. Mm-hmm. There was 1,400 people. We did $300 million in my first year. We doubled every year for the next two or three years. We got to $5 billion in a heartbeat. I mean, it was unbelievable. And then we had the tech bust right. in 2000. And our bookings dropped off 40, 39% in one quarter, 10% the next quarter. And we were pancake flat for 10 quarters in a row. 
So there was the go-go era where all my entrepreneurial styles, my passion for work, getting things done, mm-hmm. my drive, really was, it fit the sure. business. And it was, uh, coming in as a startup in that world was so easy. And we probably made, oh pre-2000, probably made 85 acquisitions, I would say. And I, and I did the next three or four jobs. It was like I didn't want to do this because we used bars and it keeps evolving over the years. Post-2000, the flat years was an entirely different world for us. And we decided to use that as a transformation moment to say, okay, this is our first major economic downturn. Why don't we go out and look at what other people have done to survive these things over the long haul? How do you make a business sustainable? Because you know, we had visions of being, you know, hundred billion dollar business. Right. We could, we could, you could do the math and say, I, I can connect these dots and we'll, we'll be a hundred billion dollar with a trillion dollar market cap. I'm dead serious. Those were mm-hmm. words that yeah. analysts were using at the time. Um, so we went out and talked to eight or 10 companies over 40 years old, eight or 10 companies less than 40 years old, but over the, more than 10 years old. People like Walmart, Shell, DuPont. Mm-hmm. And we came back and said to John, okay, listen, here's the big, the big aha. We lack process, procedures, policies. We run on tribal knowledge and relationship, and it's not sustainable. Which is very common with startups, Absolutely. especially those that have grown so fast. Sure. And, but this time we were... You were big, pretty big by then. So we used that as a platform to say, okay, we have to change how we do things. And we've, we've done a lot of work. We realized that we... We're also the largest functionally organized business in the world, so we created a matrix. John doesn't like that term, but he, we call it a dynamic network organization. It's a matrix overlay mm-hmm. that lets us focus on market segments despite our functional organization inside of the business. There, there are nine standing councils run by senior leadership that drive change in the business. Um, so we put that in place post-2000, and that's now continued to evolve. Right. We've gone from, in 2004, Four or five, when I started down the process of engineering, where we had one black belt and two or three green belts in the business, and I have thousands of green belts and probably 35 or 40 master black belts. So we've embedded to make and six sigma right. skills and lean capabilities and agile capabilities into the business now so that we can we can speed up the transformation engine. That was a dialogue we never had 10 years ago. So the business is very different. I would say we're beginning to mature. We've gone from a inside out to an outside in view of ourselves. So we're, we're more present in the market mm-hmm. in terms of how to drive change, bring our customers into the conversation and our partners, um, which I think is moving us along well. And it's letting us distance ourselves from our biggest competitors who are still fundamentally serving up technology. And we're trying to move up from a product company to a systems and solutions to move up the value curve. Mm-hmm. And how has what you did back in the 2000 timeframe helped you weather the economic downturn we've had the last several years. Well, so the good news is we um, we learned a we learned a lot of good skills in the downturn. Mm-hmm. Now that the two thousand downturn was horrific, much worse for this we industry. Nine, we lived sure. out nine thousand yeah. people in ninety days, so it was it was yeah. heartfelt for John because he swore he'd never do that again because mm-hmm. he was a wang um, when they went through their downsizing. Um, but we learned how to throttle the engine. Um, we. We were much better at scenario planning. We mm-hmm. were better at expense control. Um, we managed the team to know when to step on the brake versus just let up off the gas. Mm-hmm. So we were able to modulate the business post two thousand much better than we were before, because we didn't. There was no modulation. It was up and to the right, and we we replanned every single quarter because we so outstripped what we thought our plan was going to be that there was it was obsolete in thirty or forty days. We planned for thirty five or forty percent growth. We doubled. Mm-hmm. So we were hiring a thousand people a month at one time. I mean, it was it was wild. Huge, yeah. So 
I think now, you know, we've brought more process to the organization, more consistency to the organization, and a maturity. We've inserted some leadership mm-hmm. from the outside, and it's, it's been good for us. We haven't lost the entrepreneurial flair, and that starts with John because he's mm-hmm. got a massive amount of passion. Um, but we're a big business, and getting things done with 70,000 people versus 1,400, much harder. Mm-hmm. So it, it phrased my patience regularly, but, and I was just met with our CFO <laughs> this morning because he's, he's a little frustrated right now because change is difficult in an environment that large. It is. It's yeah. very hard. We, you know, we have, today we probably have seven or probably has an average of about seven layers in the organization wow. when John down. And it used to be three. Mm-hmm. Getting stuff done with three so or four. Lots more layers to get things yeah. through to make decisions. Exactly. Sure. So from a personal perspective, what would you say are the two or three areas you've grown the most as a leader as you've sort of gone through that transition in the organization? Well, so the biggest thing for me, I think, is... The and the reason I've been successful, and John has given me more, although there are those who believe I've been there too long, let's be clear. Um, <laughs> All of us in leadership roles have yeah, that experience yeah, exactly. sometimes. <laughs> um, and I've got, a, I've got a stallion, I've got a, a stable full of stallions behind me, chomping the bed to get this job. Um, but I would say the thing that continues to differentiate me in John's eyes is my ability to influence across the business. Okay. Um, John tells everybody that I have an ability to deliver a really lousy message, but leave somebody with a good feeling. I'm not certain that's actually true, and I'm not nearly as... Well, compared to John, I'm tough, but I'm not nearly as tough as John thinks I am, quite right. frankly. But um, I've been able but to... But we won't let anybody know that exactly. on this yeah, case, okay? Yeah, because he, he thinks I'm Ming the Merciless, I swear. <laughs> um, but it's funny, because the, the organization... I'm, I'm seen in the business as sort of the shell answer man, because I've been there a long time. I'm also seen as the executive of Last Hope. I'm also seen the rallying point for the employees. I'm a people person, mm-hmm. um, and somebody needs to play that role, which is why I have HR, quite frankly. Um, and that's important for John to have me around because I'm always going to tell John what's going on in the business because I've been there long enough. My relationship's good enough that I can deliver that kind of message even to him. It's, so we've got a symbiotic relationship. Anything John doesn't want or he can't find a home for, he gives to me. And I don't mind. I'm the guy behind the guy, and it's a perfect role for me. I never have a desire to be the guy. I've been very explicit with John on the board. I'm never going to be mm-hmm. that guy. Um, so I'm harmless. It's perfect. <laughs> and I'm harmless to my peers, which means I never come into the room with anything other than the agenda that I've shown. Because I don't have an agenda. Because I am where I am, and I'm going no farther. And I aspire for nothing more. So you mentioned that you have a stable of stallions behind you. So how did you go about identifying and then developing those people so that there is such a strong cadre of individuals to, to follow you or to move other places in the organization have a significant impact? So my, my direct reports are a very interesting mix of people. So And my previous boss, before John, the guy who ran my operations, Carl, used to always tell me that I, I hang on to people. I'm a, I hang on to people too. I'm, I'm a... I sort of give them the last gasp to prove they're going to make it, which is a, which can be a problem, quite mm-hmm. frankly, and I've gotten better at calling it. But, so if you look at my team, the one that runs IT for me, I hired 12, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And she's had several jobs in the business, all successful, and she's a fixer. And IT needed to be fixed when I gave her the job, and she came in and did it. Now she's really liking the CIO role. She didn't think she'd like the public persona stuff. She's gotten really good at speaking publicly. Mm-hmm. She likes the role. She loves her team. She's turned out her entire leadership team. None of what she started with is still there today. In manufacturing, I tried to develop people from inside, and when I stepped up to the new job, it was a bust. So mm-hmm. I had to bring somebody up the outside. So I found a young, bright guy who had worked both in very big businesses. He'd worked in banking. He'd worked in a computing business. Um, it was, he was at um, a handheld device company when I hired him. We brought Angel in about five or six years ago, and he's been a super add to the business. 
um, and he runs a great supply chain organization. My attorney, our general counsel has been here 16 or 17 years. The woman who runs corporate affairs has been there 21 years. The HR guy's only been there four. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have good HR leadership. I brought Skip in from Microsoft. He's been at Pepsi. He was at Frito-Lay. He mm-hmm. was an investment banking firm. He's very mature. He's worked overseas. So it's a mix of mm-hmm. people, and it's been a who's going to make the scale and who's not, and it's all about scaling. I mean, it's a... Quite frankly, even for myself, momentum has carried me a long way. I never thought I'd be at, a, at an executive staff level at a $40 billion enterprise mm-hmm. 25 years ago. It wouldn't even have dawned on me. But you've got to have executives who can scale with the organization and the massive amount of complexity that we're dealing with. And some folks just can't do it. And no harm to them. We just can have that dialogue now that says, you know what? You're not going to get there from here. I'm sorry. No, we'll help you find a job. We'll make the, the exit mm-hmm. you know, graceful. But you're just not going to make it. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I've waited for that tap for years, so let's be <laughs> My day is coming, I'm, I'm certain. You know you've had to do it to other people. It could exactly. certainly happen yeah, to yeah. you as well. Yes. Well, and it's, it's such a difficult thing to do, especially with people you've worked with for a while. But what I find interesting about what you said was that you haven't used the same model. I mean, some companies are very set on promoting internally. Other companies want to oh, bring no. everybody in. And you've actually done a mixture of those two yeah. things. And John has sent that message for 10 years, that we, we don't want to become so insular that we speak with one voice and lose our ability to transform ourselves. So we like inserting mm-hmm. disturbers in the business. And quite honestly, both the HR guy and my manufacturing guy were disturbers. They, they, mm-hmm. they made the organization squeamish for including John, because Angel, the manufacturing guy, is very, very upfront, very direct, very confrontational, because he came out of that industry. That's not our style, but that's good because I think healthy conflict is going to be good for us over the long haul. So we monitor. We actually report out to John twice a year. This is the leadership evolution. This is promotions. This is additions from the outside, and this is who's left the business. We manage that portfolio. We try to keep it a two-thirds, one-third, 50-50 sort of split. And a couple of years ago, we inserted 40 vice presidents in 10 wow. months. We decided we were going to add talent to the business, and we went out. So when you brought those people in from outside the two that you mentioned specifically that were sort of disruptive in the system, how do you balance that disruption with not causing so much chaos that it implodes the system? So how did, how did you manage and monitor that with these new people well, to help so, them to yeah. be successful? So we are, I have a chief of staff who's wicked smart, and we have done, we recognize that executives' insertions into Cisco were, were problematic. And we started creating playbooks for people. So you walk in as a new executive mm-hmm. for me, and I'm going to hand you. Okay, this is the people. These are your key constituents. These are your customers. Don't lose sight of this fact. And by the way, these are the people you're going to have to move over time. And here's our current assessment of your talent. So we actually set up one-on-ones. We get them around inside of the organization. We have um, a formula for how you articulate where you're taking your organization. It's called a VSE, Vision, Strategy, and Execution. We have measures of success. We, we make them road show that around in the business so that they can, I'm the new guy. Here's where mm-hmm. I'm going. Um, and it helps integrate them. It gives them credibility. If they find touch points, they get a ton of information as part of that. Since you're the new guy, let me tell you what's wrong with the organization stuff. It's all good. Um, and then we do a new manager assimilation process where, and this is painful because I've been through it twice myself when I got promoted both the VP and SVP, um, where you sit with your team and you have they have a frank conversation with what they think of you and what they expect of you. Um, and that it's they can be... 
they can be tough when you're a peer who gets a, mm-hmm. a sins up because that's happened to me twice. Um, but from the outside, it's generally pretty harmless because then Angel will say, here's my principles of leadership. Here's what I expect of you. Now, let's have the reverse conversation. And it's, it's worked well. They, it creates for them a developmental plan that we actually track on a 90, basis to make sure the insertion is going well. I would say we're... It takes forever to get hired at Cisco. My God, you can get interviewed at the executive level. You could be interviewed twenty times. So wow. yeah, we are take it very seriously. We're very tedious. Yeah. I mean, we drive people nuts. I'm not certain I could have been hired by Cisco if they didn't require me because I don't <laughs> have pay, I would have the patience for the process. Um, but we choose wisely. So I would guess ninety five percent of our executives make it. It's a very good track record. Yeah, it's yeah. it is pretty good, quite honestly. So I'm going to shift gears just a sure. little bit. Um, our mission at the university at Pepperdine is to prepare students for lives of purpose, service, and leadership. So service is a big portion of that. And you do a lot of service beyond the significant responsibilities that you have at Cisco. So you do some philanthropic things, some volunteer things, and you've begun to embed some of those in Cisco. Why is that important to you? And what is it that sort of drives that aspect of who you are? You know, so my philanthropic work really evolved over the time, over time, as you would expect. So, as a young guy, I, you know, especially in a startup, I was working 70, 80 hours a week. It was, it was wild. And, my, and I had young kids, and mm-hmm. every time I got pregnant, I changed jobs. <laughs> Just to create more angst in the family. She's thankful you yeah. haven't changed jobs that too much believe, recently. Yeah. So 17, I've been in this job for 17 years. Um, so, but um, we, it was all about work, work and raising the kids. Mm-hmm. And then I would say about, well, when I got to Cisco, there was this concept of giving back. And both John, and it really permeated from John Morgridge down to John Chambers. Mm-hmm. But it's even on our culture badge, on my badge on. We, we talk about giving back. Mm-hmm. It's the fundamental to Cisco. We have a big corporate affairs group. We have a big philanthropy. We have a foundation. And at Cisco, that stimulated this in me a little bit. And then I went, I got a, attracted to a local board. I sat on the Children's Discovery Museum board for 10 years. I was the chair for five, four or five. And that was my first not-for-profit experience. But then I joined ALF, the American Leadership Forum, mm-hmm. and I went through that process. And that was transformational for me because I came a, it's, it's a blend of corporate, not-for-profit, and public sector people who mm-hmm. go through a class together with groups of 20 for a year. You meet twice a month, and you go off and you go to the wilderness for a week. You go mm-hmm. to the Sacramento lobby for a week. So it's, it's a great program. Sure. That was sort of an eye-opener for me because then I met a Muslim woman, who, and I can't tell you, I never had a Muslim friend, and I joined her board. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an Islamic education Right, the group. Islamic Network yeah, group. Yeah, yeah, ING. And I convinced her to make it an interfaith program. So now we do an interfaith speakers bureau. We go in That's and talk nice. about Judaism, Christianity, and um, Islam, and we go in with three speakers, you know, like a priest, a rabbi, and, mm-hmm. and an imam, because they're, they're much more similar than people actually think. Right. The foundations are the same. Sure, the they priests, all came out of the same Exactly. Group. Sure. So that was good for me. And then from there, I just... I sort of got hooked. So now I'm, I'm on the Board of Regents at Santa Clara. I'm on the Foundation Board at Ball State. Um, I'm, on the Mar- I'm the chair of the March of Dimes Board for the South Bay. I'm on the CARE USA Board. Um, I've just done a lot of other things. And I've now been driving Cisco that it's not just about money, right. but it's about participation. Mm-hmm. So I'm now helping get Cisco executives, especially up-and-comers, to sit in a not-for-profit oh, environment because right. you learn influence skills that you don't get in a corporation. And it, it's frustrating but it's developmentally mm-hmm. very good. Um, so I probably have 25 VPs, I would guess, or directors that sit on local. Oh, just in San fabulous for the community yeah. here to have that kind of engagement. And it, and it, it we're, we're a huge fundraiser as well. So we've oh, got a sure. massive giving program. We have a matching program. So for me, 
I've had several times where people have touched me and have sort of moved me through. I've gone to New Orleans three times to build houses mm -hmm. through Santa Clara. It was the first time that I took my team down there once. Um, so I believe you should always recognize when you've been wildly lucky, and I have been wildly lucky. I came. I grew up. My, my I'm a lower middle income mm -hmm. person. My my parents never made a hundred thousand dollars in a year in their lives. Um, I went to a state school. I graduated well. I started out as a public accountant, and I've done really well. And we told our daughters, you know, we're going to take care of you, but we're not going to leave you a lot of money. We're going to give it away. So my wife and I have a found, our own foundation, mm -hmm. and we actively give our money away. Um, and that was a principle John Margaret's taught me. He gave his kids a flat amount of money, mm -hmm. and he's going to give away the rest of his money. I like that. I made it. I should have the right to do with it what I want, and I don't want to make my kids so comfortable they don't right. do anything, quite honestly. So um, it's been a, a journey uh, with a lot of influence and a lot of people, and it sort of got me where I'm at. Now, I read somewhere, and correct me if this is wrong, that when you started your foundation, one of your daughters was like 16 or so, and you actually had her as a non-voting member yeah. of the board. So how have you used that, that from a parental perspective to sort of develop well, so they, if this has been a, this has been interesting, my my two so that we've always told the girls do what you love to do and don't worry about money because I've already solved the money problem for us. So and I always told them if they were teachers or nuns, I'd take care of them for the rest of their lives. And my oldest is a teacher. She teaches grade school in a small inner city Catholic school, oh, and she loves wonderful. it. She teaches fifth grade. Fabulous. She's been at it for about four or five years, and we embrace them in this by saying, okay, you know what. We want to give our money away, not just where we want to focus, but where it's important for you guys. So I have one daughter who's very much into education. So we've donated, we've helped digitize her school and her personal classroom in the school. Sure. And we've done some reparations work in the school. It's a very poor parish. And then um, the other daughter's an environmental science major. She just graduated from the University of Portland. She's working for a not-for-profit in Portland, making That's a lousy twelve hundred bucks a month. Um, yeah, I know. But doing something she loves. She, she's having a great time. She loves it. It's, it's a good experience. She's going to get a master's degree. She's certain. So I think we've instilled in them both the concept of giving back in what you do mm -hmm. and the concept of giving back out of your money. We haven't been completely, because the girls are 26 and 22, right. so we're not completely transparent with the size of the money sure, they have, sure. but we've let them play. So, you know, one will give money to schools and education stuff, and the little one bought water purification systems and other things that to give away in Africa. Mm -hmm. She And she's big on... Um, I forget what it's called. You can buy the ark where you buy animals. She oh, them. yeah. Heifer. Yeah. Yes. She, she's mm -hmm. given money. My daughter's her. like really into that. She was yeah. looking through the catalog the other day Correct. and wanted to buy yeah. chickens and lambs. And <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great story. She didn't want to buy rabbits, though. She thought that was just a little too much, you know, <laughs> thinking what they might do with those exactly. rabbits. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to eat those rabbits. I got bad news for you. Um, so I think, you know, we're beginning to instill it in the girls, and they're both on the board today. Mm -hmm. um, we're, what's funny, we haven't been as active with the foundations we have, we just out of our own daily, out of my current income. Sure. In terms of giving. So, but we've included the girls. We have a conversation every mm -hmm. year. Um, so we're, you know, we do it, we vote as a family. We do a lot of interesting things as a family because they're young and I want to make sure that they get in the right. habit of what I think as a citizen you sort of owe to the mm -hmm. community. I think they're going to be fine. My, my yeah. wife's a wonderful person. She's raised two great girls and they have a sense of both giving back and a sense of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Okay. Much well, older than I had, quite frankly. So. Well, and you've been a wonderful model, not only for your family, but for your employees as well, which is fabulous, which will cause that cycle correct. to continue in many, many places. It should places. be a virtuous cycle. We hope so. Yeah, that That's the correct. intent. That's, That's right. the intent. Well, to, to close our discussion, um, we uh, talk a lot about values in the business school and at Pepperdine. So if you you know had to close by articulating you know two or three sort of your core values, and we've probably touched on some of them throughout the conversation, but two or three sort of core values that drive who you are as a leader, what would those be? 
Well, so what I always tell my my team is they can always be certain they're going to get complete honesty from me. Mm-hmm. Now, not not to obnoxiousness, but I'm I'm going to say what's on my mind, and I'm going to expect the same from them. So I'm always honest, and I'm I'm always truthful, and I'm principled from an honesty perspective to the corporation. So I've told them it's about the it's about the customer, it's about the business, it's about our functions, and it's about the team, and then it's about you. Mm-hmm. So we're at the bottom of this pyramid, and I've instilled that forever. Um, I'm I'm a big believer. Lee Scott once told me he was the, was the, when he was president of Walmart. We had him in for one of our sessions, and you know he was a big believer in giving all the praise away. I'm a, I think that's something mm-hmm. I I give credit to everybody and try to take as little credit as mm-hmm. I possibly can because I think that's a virtuous circle because people then don't find themselves time trying overreach and take credit for what's right. not theirs and I think that kills mm-hmm. corporate cultures. Um, and you know I set an expectation in the business that. At our level, at my team and my level and my peers' level, it's not about managing, but it's about leading. And leading is about transforming and creating a vision for where you want to go and bringing the organization with it. And that's how we should be spending our day. We pay people to manage the operation every day. And that's a big leap for people when they step up. And it's been part of it's been part of our re-education of leaders that we've taken good managers and made them leaders and they're not particularly good leaders because we haven't skilled them. Mm-hmm. So we've changed all of our leadership development. We've made it much more immersive. Um, our inspection process is much better. And a lot of that was work that you know I did as part of my team. It's just sort of, it's a starting point. And I think it's been good for the business and it's been good for me. We so appreciate you being with us. I mean, what you do exemplifies so much what we want our students to to see in leaders. So we appreciate that and wish you the best with the rest of your work at Cisco. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Linda. That was a terrific interview with, uh, with Randy. You know, he spent a lot of time talking about innovation and what Cisco's doing in that area, and I think that's so relevant to what's going on in business. So it was a really exceptional evening. Certainly, yes. Well, Linda, uh, tell us a little bit about what's coming up uh, next time in the series. Our next speaker will be joining us on January 20th to bring in the new year. We'll have with us Deborah Nelson, who is the Chief of Staff Enterprise Sales, Marketing, and Strategy with Hewlett Packard Company. So Mm. given all that's gone on with Hewlett Packard this year, it will be quite interesting, I'm sure. Certainly. Well, we look forward to that. Let me invite our listeners to uh, learn more about the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. You can do so by visiting our website at bschool.pepperdine.edu slash Dells. Until next time, thanks for listening. True leaders inspire others around them to achieve, and leadership is a quality that we can help you develop and master. I'm Dr. Gary Mangifico, Associate Dean at Pepperdine University's Grazia Deal School of Business and Management. Our evening and weekend MBA program is designed exclusively for working professionals like you. Our curriculum, faculty, and highly collaborative learning environment give you a deeper understanding of your own unique leadership style. And though our regional campuses are only a short distance from your home or your work, you'll travel further than you ever dreamed possible. To learn more about our evening and weekend MBA program at our Encino, Irvine, West LA, Westlake Village graduate campuses, or our new Santa Barbara location, text INVEST to 30364. Pepperdine's Grazia Deal School of Business and Management. Master the leader in you.